even if our world does not. We just want to thank you for this opportunity to be together around the word of God. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. Okay. Somebody got Children's Church? Huh? Yes, that must be them there. Okay. Kids, you want to go to Children's Church? You may. Okay, <clears throat> I don't have anything that's uh, titled a special, uh, you know, New Year, looking to New Year's uh, sermon. We're just going to continue on in the book of Matthew. Uh, the title of this is Paying the Tax That You Do Not Owe. Paying the Tax That You Do Not Owe. We can find it in Matthew 17, verses 22 down to 27. That's where we'll be today. Matthew 17, 22 to 27. Uh, there's notes in the bulletin if you want to fill those out. Uh, for the message today. I want to begin this way by uh, talking about something that Dr. David Turner said, one of the commentaries that I use on the book of Matthew. He said, in studying this passage, he made this observation, now I quote, Jesus treated non-religious sinners gently and religious hypocrites harshly. Jesus treated non-religious sinners gently and religious hypocrites Harshly. Now, I think that we have seen this demonstrated in the book of Matthew already, uh, clearly in the text, and it will be even more apparent when we finally get to chapter 23, where Jesus takes the religious leaders to task, to put it lightly. Uh, and that's where he really gets with it and tells them what they're uh, made of and what they're not made of. And he's going to call them whitewashed sepulchers. He's going to say, you people travel halfway around the world to make a proselyte to Christianity, and then you make, I mean, sorry, to Judaism, and then you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. Uh, this is not going to make them uh, friendly with Jesus. It's going to push them to move ahead his, uh, his crucifixion. Well, with this in mind uh, today, we look at today's text, and we will ask and answer the following question. So we want to ask this question of this text. Is there ever a time when we should forego our rights and our liberties for the sake of the kingdom of God? Now, I want to say that again because I'm talking about Christians today, right? Uh, is there ever a time when we should forego our rights and our liberties in Christ for the sake of the kingdom of God? Today, Jesus answers that question with a resounding, yes, there are. There are times like that. Now, this is a more difficult issue in our society uh, where we have many rights, probably have more rights than anybody on planet Earth. Uh, we just prayed about the fact that we're here, uh, we can worship freely still, and we are not afraid of uh, any attack uh, or anything like that, and we, we have it made. And it's a difficult issue, a difficult issue in our society because we have so many rights and then we demand them. Nobody's going to push us around, nobody's going to take from us what, <clears throat> excuse me, what is rightfully ours, and we're going to push for it, and we're going to hang on to it, and we're going to stand for our rights. And uh, that, that is uh, problematic in societies where we have so many rights. It's not so problematic in societies where they have very few rights, and they're not used to uh, pushing those rights around. So I want to ask this question. What liberties, what personal rights 
would I and you be willing to give up for the sake of the kingdom of God? Instead of standing, you know, and, and our, with our fist in the air and saying, I'm not going to give up my right. You can't take this from me. I don't have to do this. What would we give up? What would we do without for the sake of the kingdom of God? <clears throat> now, I don't have to, uh, but I will for the reputation of Jesus and the advancement of his kingdom give up rights that I think are mine if I can advance the gospel or not offend somebody needlessly with what I believe. Now, it means that in the first place, I am all about the kingdom of Christ, and I'm not about my own little kingdom. I'm all about the kingdom of Christ, but I'm not so much about my rights. I'm about Jesus and his rights. I'm not about my kingdom. I'm about his kingdom. And this is what we're going to learn today along with uh, a word about salvation. So if you're looking in your text in uh, Matthew 17, hope you brought your Bible with you. In verse 22, it says this. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, so he's got his disciples together, and he's going to tell them one more time what's going to happen uh, in just a little while in his life. He says, the Son of Man, Jesus referring to himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And it says they were deeply grieved. Now, in the parallel passages in Luke and in Mark, we find out that uh, they didn't quite understand what Jesus was saying. Here, Matthew just wants us to know, you just heard your rabbi, you just heard your master say that he's going to get killed, and they're, they're disturbed about that. They're a little upset about that. Well, he leaves that, and he goes into the next section in verse 24. And when they came to Capernaum, so now we're back in Jesus' hometown and Peter's hometown, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. In other words, he walks in the house. He doesn't get a chance to say anything about what he just went through with the tax. Somebody starts talking, and it's Jesus. So Jesus asks him this question. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And by strangers, he means those not his family. When Peter, then Peter said, uh, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. In other words, free from taxation. They're exempt from taxation. However, Jesus said, and it's a big however, so that, here's his reason and his purpose for saying what he's saying, so that we do not offend them. We'll talk about what that word means. Go to the sea, so he said, you know, we're right by the Sea of Galilee, we're, we're in Capernaum, go down to the shore and throw in a hook, he means on a line, of course, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel, take that and give it to them for you and for me. So the shekel would pay for two people's tax for that year, and that's two denarii, and uh, here he's talking about a different, uh, uh, the drachma, two of those would pay for one man, two for another man. Jesus says, I want you to go down, I want you to fish, the first fish you get, pull it out, and it's going to have the tax in its mouth, and then go and pay the tax. <laughs> now, wouldn't that be nice if that's how we got our money for taxes, right? You know, you go out, uh, I don't know, uh, fish or something like that and get the tax out of the mouth. That'd be great, but it doesn't really work that way for us all the time, but it does work for us, and we'll talk about that and how it does. I want to look at verses 22 to 23 first, because that's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is that Jesus died and rose again and paid for our sins. That's the gospel. 
And Jesus' mission brings sorrow to the hearts of those who love him. He's telling them ahead of time, I'm going to be put to death here. I'm going to die uh, in this place. And then I'm going to be raised on the third day. I think if I heard the news, I'd be concentrating on the I'm going to get killed part more than I'm going to be raised on the third day. And they don't really understand that. Maybe we wouldn't have either. But it brings sorrow to the heart of the believer. In verse 23, Jesus tells the disciples, again, I'm sorry, my allergies are terrible today. This is better than me sniffling. Hang in there. I'll get through it. And you will too. Jesus tells the disciples again that he is destined to fulfill the Father's plan of redemption. I've got to save my people. That's what the Father sent me for. And there's only one way to do it. I have to die and I have to raise again from from the dead. And I'm going to be delivered into men's hands. And this, of course, is talking about evil men, not good men. The religious leaders, who should be good men, but they're not, who will push Pilate until he orders that Jesus be crucified because he's tired of dealing with the Jews. So the Son of Man, Jesus Christ the Messiah, who took on our flesh, will be delivered into the hands of men, which means they will have power over him and able to do what they're supposed to do, which is put him to death. That's the plan of God. Now remember, he's going to be arrested. Peter tries to stop it. Peter is one of the two guys that is carrying a sword. He cuts off the high priest's servant's ear, Malchus, and Jesus said, put your sword away. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. He, He grabs the man's ear, and he puts it back on and heals him. And he turns to Peter, and he says, look, don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels if I didn't want to go through this? And the Lord would send them. That's 72,000 angels, if, if you uh, want to add that up. 72,000 angels to stop them from doing that if Jesus didn't want it to happen. But Jesus knows he has to go through this. That's why he doesn't hardly at all talk to those who are accusing him. He's just going to let this go on. Um, I want to make a point here from Pilate. If you'll look in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 19, for just a minute. And I'm going to look at uh, verses 10 and 11. So Jesus is on trial before Pilate. And Pilate wants him to know, you know what, buddy, you better speak to me. Because I have the power to put you to death if you don't. Why are you standing there and not talking to me and telling me what, what you're doing and who you are? And so Pilate said to him in verse 10, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to let you go free? Or I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus' answer is this. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar, the king. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Ow. Hmm. What I want you to remember there is that we have this truth in the Bible that the enemy cannot touch you unless Jesus allows it. And if Jesus allows it, it's good for us, even if it hurts, because he's molding us and shaping us, and everything that comes to us has to get his permission first. And he's saying to Pilate, you, you really think that you have authority over me and you can do whatever you want? You do not have authority except what is given to you by the Father. 
and right now the authority is going to be to put me to death. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm in with that. I'm going to go with that. So I just want you to remember, uh, I don't know what we're facing in 2024. I'm sure it's going to be worse than anything in 2023. Uh, things are falling apart in our world and in our nation. What was good is now bad. What's bad is now good. And uh, you can just see how all the things that were promised in the Bible about the eschaton and the things to come are really coming together quick, really fast, faster than any time in the past. And so who knows what's going to happen? Who knows whether we'll be able to thank God that we are not uh, being uh, patrolled by somebody or not allowed to meet? I don't know. But our time is short. We need to work on that. We need to remember they can't do anything to you unless Jesus allows it. And if he allows it, it's in some way good for us. And so we go forward with him thinking those things. Well, he has only the best intentions for them, the leaders, the religious leaders that are attacking him. And they have nothing but hatred and desires for murdering him. In uh, the second movement in verse 23, these men will kill Jesus then completely out of their own control, which they think the death is under their control, it really isn't, but out of their own control, he will also raise again on the third day, and they can't stop him. This is God's plan for salvation. For the very men who are killing him, Jesus dies for them if they might find faith. And I think that one soldier at the cross said, truly, this is the Son of God. We may see him in heaven. That was a statement of faith. I don't know, but it sounds like that may happen. And he's dying for the people that are killing him. So I don't want us to forget, we killed him too. Uh, my sin was no greater than Pilate's sin. My sin was no less than his sin. My sin was no greater than the religious leaders and no less. We all, because of our sin, put Jesus on the cross and he was killed for us. Jesus is the one who is in complete control of his life and his death. So he says in John 10... 17 and 18, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life in order that I may take it up again. And Jesus says, listen up, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus didn't go because he was in a situation he couldn't get out of and, and he couldn't get away from the people trying to kill him. He went because he knew this is the Father's plan. He gave this to me and I'm going to go through it because he loves you and because he loves me. And he did it. The last part of verse 23. At this reminder, the disciples were in severe emotional distress. There is maturity, however, in that nobody is standing up in opposition to God's plan at this time. Peter learned his lesson in chapter 16. We don't do that. But they did not yet fully understand why Jesus had to die instead of just becoming the king. That's usually not the path to the throne. Truthfully, we are all distressed. When we think about the fact that it was because of my sin he also went to the cross. It was blood that he shed also for me and for you. He was tortured to death for me. Sin is always ugly, and sin always costs life, Jesus' life. He died in our place, a substitute. He took our place. And that is a lot of love for unlovely people like us. It is the greatest gift for those who have nothing of value to offer God for their salvation, and that's every one of us. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags 
before the Lord, Isaiah said. In the second part of this, Jesus moves on from that, and he, uh, Jesus is concerned about needlessly offending people, and he avoids it. So in verse 24, most likely on the outskirts of Capernaum, where they usually set up a tax booth for travelers, there's a Jewish tax booth there. And there were some people there who collected the two drachma tax from every individual uh, man uh, over the age of 20 uh, to pay the temple tax. So uh, the temple tax was paid twice a year, so you end up paying about a shekel each every year for the temple tax. This is biblical. Look at Exodus 30, verse 13, if you would, please. Exodus 30 and verse 13. We're learning that this is a biblical thing, right? This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras half a shekel as a contribution to, to Yahweh. They'll pay another half uh, later on. Let's look at another one and see that. Let's go down to chapter 38, verses 25 and 26 in, in uh, Exodus. Okay, so we're in Exodus uh, 38, 25 and 26. The silver of the house of the congregation... Uh, who were numbered with was 100 talents, 1,775 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. That's why he had to pay in the shekel, because that was accepted at the sanctuary. A bika ahead, that is half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for each one who passed over, the, over those who were uh, numbered uh, from 20 years old and onward for 603,550 men. So they took the temple tax. This is what the law says. This is what they have to do. So uh, it's the law that they do that. Now, Jesus has something to say about that. Each year, every Jew over age 20, a man, must uh, pay the half shekel temple tax uh, for the upkeep of the temple. Uh, These tax collectors came to Peter and wanted to know if Jesus was going to pay his share of the tax. Peter, without thinking, quickly says, yes, yeah, my, my master does the right thing. Yes, he does pay the tax. We have no record of this habit. That doesn't mean he didn't do it at other times, and maybe it's not come up before. We don't know, but likely it has not come up because uh, Matthew would have brought it up before because he's trying to teach us something. The point is that he did not consult with Jesus before answering. He just said yes. Peter walks into the house where Jesus is, and Jesus just starts talking to him and doesn't ask him, you know, where have you been, Peter? What have you been doing? Uh, What's up with you today? He just starts talking to him, and he already knows what's going on. And so uh, he can't say anything, and Jesus jumps in. And he has a question for Peter about his opinion on taxes and who's going to pay those taxes. This is is an opinion question from Peter. Does he think that the kings of the earth collect taxes from their sons, in other words, their family, uh, or from strangers, those who are in the kingdom who are not their family? Peter answers correctly in verse 26, and uh, he says, uh, no, just, just the strangers pay the tax, not, not the king's family or his friends. So Peter says the king takes taxes from strangers. And it happened that ancient kings would regularly exempt their family members from having to pay any taxes. And sometimes they did that uh, of their friends. It is also true that many rabbis in the kingdom and their students, depending on the rabbi, were exempt from paying taxes as well. I'm talking about the temple tax. 
The things to take away from this is that kings and rabbis don't pay taxes. And that's what we need to learn from what, what Jesus is saying. Thus, Jesus' comment is that the sons of the king are to be exempt. They're to be free of this tax. Jesus is not only a king, even though they didn't accept him. His disciples are sons of his kingdom, even though they haven't accepted the kingdom. And his students, because he's also a rabbi, just not officially by Jewish higher educational standards. But everybody calls him rabbi, but they're not exempt from the tax. So thus, Jesus is saying that they have every right to not pay the two drachma tax per man. Why? Because he is a king. These are his sons. He's also a rabbi, and these are his students. So why should we have to pay the tax? See, if you go with what Jesus is saying, he doesn't really have to pay the tax, and neither do his disciples. And he shouldn't be paying the tax. And he could have put his sandal down and on, the, on the ground there and said, we are not going to pay this tax. It's wrong. But that's not what he does. And there's a lesson in this for us. Despite their right, in verse 27, to say no to the tax, Jesus wants to go ahead and pay it. Why? So we don't offend those tax collectors who are collecting it. More than likely, these are just Jewish tax collectors, not believers. And Jesus is concerned about that. And I think we need to be concerned about the unbelievers around us. We don't have to offend them on purpose. Uh, we don't have to deny them because of our rights. We can also not offend them and go ahead and pay the tax. Now, Paul teaches this principle of surrendering, pers surrendering personal rights for the sake of the gospel message and its advance in human hearts. I want you to see this in 1 Corinthians with me, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, there's other places where it's taught. I'll mention those after a while here, uh, but we're not going to read them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So, friends, I have to ask myself, am I in sympathy with what Jesus teaches me? We live in a world right now where it's calling the things that we call evil, they're calling those good, and they're flaunting that on television and everywhere else. And uh, they look at us and think we have an archaic law that we follow, and we do have uh, an archaic law. It's ancient. We just sent a bunch of our kids down there to be trained at a young age in sympathy with our view of the word of God that these are rules God wants you to keep. They're not going to find that in the world. The world's telling them something completely different. And they're saying that the things that the Bible says are bad, no, no, they're good, kids, and don't listen to your parents, don't listen to Jesus, don't listen to God. And they're saying the things that we say are, are evil, they're saying, no, those are good, and the things we say are good, no, that's evil. And the whole thing is being turned upside down. Certainly, the spirit of deception of the end days is now upon us, and it's, it's, in, our, it's in our culture and around the world. This is what we've been dealt. This is where we're at. How do we treat these people? Do we demand our rights in every situation and say, no, I don't have to do this and I'm not going to do this? Well, let's look at what Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 23. Paul says, all things are lawful. Like there's no dietary laws anymore. Jesus did away with those. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. He's not saying that all sin is now open to you. No, he would never say that. 
but he's saying all things are profitable, like the dietary laws and other things. And all, all things are not, are, but not all are profitable. So there's things you're open to do, but they don't profit uh, the way we want them to. And that's what Jesus is doing in Matthew uh, in this passage we're in. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let the one who seeks his own good, I'm sorry, let no one uh, seek his own good, I knew that was wrong, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for the sake of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. So goodbye dietary law. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for the sake of conscience. But if anyone says to you, hey, by the way, this meat that you're eating is sacrificed to our idols, then he says don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake your own. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's conscience, for why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? So the issue is, um, I have a good conscience here, but for conscience sake, conscience sake in somebody else, then you need to understand that you have freedom here. Uh, it's okay for you to eat, but you're going to ask then, why am, I, why am I judged by another's conscience? Why do I have to worry about that? If I partake in, with thanksgiving, why am I slandered concerning that for which I gave thanks? Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. See, that's the guiding principle. Does what I'm doing glorify God? And that's what Jesus was telling Peter back in Matthew 17. Give no offense to Jew or to Greek or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit. I could say my own kingdom, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. That's our goal. That's what we want. Yes, I have the liberty to do this. Yes, I have freedom in Christ to do this. And maybe I don't feel that the tax on me is righteous. And Jesus said, in this case, this tax is, should not be applied to us. But pay it. Pay it. A couple of things here. One from Dr. Keener. He said the principle is that we must sometimes engage in otherwise unprofitable pursuits for the sake of upholding our witness as citizens of the community where God has placed us. Pay the tax. Dr. Turner said, foregoing one's liberties for the sake of avoiding offense and furthering the testimony of the kingdom is also a Pauline teaching. So we read 1 Corinthians 10, we could read Romans 14, 13 to 23, and 1 Corinthians 8, 9 through 9, 1, and we get the same thing. Jesus is determined that there was no value in offending these folks by paying the tax. He will submit to the tax. He doesn't want to offend them, and there's, we have to pay attention here if we want to be like Jesus. The word is scandalize in the Greek. Uh, it is to cause to be brought to a downfall or to shock through word or action, to just outright offend somebody or cause them anger. So we have to be looking for that. Look back in your, in your text in Isaiah 42, 2 to 3. Isaiah 42, 2 to 3. Talking about the Messiah, he says he will not cry out or raise his voice. Jesus is not obnoxious for the sake of being obnoxious. 
nor make his voice heard in the streets. He's not a raving lunatic about what he believes. Goes on to say, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. In other words, for the weak in society, Jesus is very gentle. He's very humble. He's not here to tear them apart. He's here to win them to salvation. And uh, that's, that's quoted again in Matthew 12, 19 to 21. It outlines the spirit in which Jesus is complying with this. So the first thing that comes up when you're asked to give up one of your, uh, one of your rights or one of your freedoms in Christ is, what will happen if I do? What will happen if I don't offend this person and maybe gain a way to talk to them later on? Uh, I'm sure it's not the first time they came to Capernaum and ran into these tax collectors. Jesus sends Peter fishing in order to pick up the money necessary to pay the tax. Now, we probably can't do that, but the principle is still the same for us. Let's look at it, all right? This shows that Jesus' decision has the approval of God on it. He's giving up his rights as a king, to not be taxed this way, as the king, and God approves it. It shows that God approves it for us when we act on faith in this way too. It answers the question as to why so many people go fishing on Sunday morning today. Uh, they are fishing to find next week's tithe money. I've come to, I've come to learn that. Yeah, I'm kidding. I've had people give me worse reasons than that. I remember going through this passage in a Bible study years ago, and my uncle, Uncle Eddie, was sitting there shaking his head back and forth and laughing. I said, what's the problem? He said, that didn't happen. <laughs> this didn't happen. And I, th I said, are you kidding me? What other part of the Bible would you like to look at and say that didn't happen? Do I believe that Peter took a, a fishing line and a hook, walked down to the Sea of Galilee and the shores of Capernaum, and threw it in the water and held on to it, and the first fish he caught, out of all the fish are there, and he didn't use a net, he used one hook, it doesn't say he even put anything on the hook. He threw it in the water, he catches a fish, and lo and behold, he opens the fish's mouth, and it's got the money to pay the tax in it. <laughs> now, for me, that might make fishing worth it. <laughs> but it would take something like that. Peter uses a hook, not a net, to catch the one fish that Jesus is talking about. He didn't stand on the shore a half a day and yell back and say, I still haven't found the one with the money. The first one he catches comes in, it's got the money. It's a miracle. Now, there have been uh, people that don't like God's miracles. They've, they've pointed up the idea that there have been people that caught other fish there that had a coin in their mouth. Fish tend to bite flashy metal objects when they fall out of your robe while you're fishing. And so that's not something that never happened. But I'm telling you, it had the exact amount that they needed. It was the first fish he caught. He just threw in a hook. He pulls it out. It has the money that they need, and that's a miracle. Finding fish later on that had something in their mouth does not prove that this is not a miracle. Lo and behold, the fish that he catches has the exact coinage that they need to pay for his tax and the tax of Jesus. One shekel was worth four drachma, or the denarius that I showed you. The perfect provision for the exact need. The perfect provision for the exact need. Let's look at this, okay? Peter tells people, yeah, we pay the tax. He didn't ask Jesus. He comes in the room. Jesus has already asked him a question. 
should the king and the king's friends have to pay tax? Answer, no. Is that what kings of the earth do? Yes. And then Jesus says, so that we don't offend these men that are out there taking the tax, so we don't offend them and turn them away from our message and turn them away from me, I want you to pay the tax. Okay, fine. Where are we going to get the money? And Jesus said, well, here's how we're going to do that. Here's how we're going to do something to try not to offend somebody. And he says, I want you to go down and go fishing. The first thing you pull out, open that fish's mouth. It's going to have the tax we owe in it. And he does it. And what that tells me is this. When you have faith enough to obey God, can I say, can I say faith enough to even give up your rights? Give up your rights a little bit so that somebody else can be one to Christ, that Jesus will provide what you need to do that? Does this teach that? Of course it does. That's why Matthew put it in there. When you go out of your way to not do something for somebody so as not to offend them, Jesus will give you what you need to do it. And it may not be in this dramatic of a way, but he'll do it. And we assume that Peter paid the taxes, although the text doesn't say that. God is behind us. Do you believe that? God will support us in doing things that purposely do not offend when it advances the message of the kingdom of Christ. So um, I've got a couple minutes here, so let's go through the application, shall we? If you're following in your bulletin. The first part was about Jesus' work of salvation. The Father put his Son on the cross simply because he loved you. The Father put his Son on the cross. And Jesus laid down his life on his own accord because he loved you. And unbelievably, he loved me too. Have you put your faith in that for your salvation? You can't work your way into heaven. You can't go to church enough. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone through the grace of God who provided this way. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I ask forgiveness for my sins, and I believe you paid for my sins on the cross. Would you come in and live with me? And he'll send his Holy Spirit and himself and live with you. Secondly, the issue we spent most time on is this. Would you willingly pay something that you don't owe in order to advance the gospel of Christ? We also said, are you willing to give up a freedom in an area that rightfully you could go to court and argue, I don't have to do this, but you see that it might get in the way of your testimony and your gospel, and you said, I'll pay it. And you do it for the gospel and the sake of the kingdom. <clears throat> and just to save myself some trouble, number three, no, the pastor was not serious about supporting fishing for tithe money on a Sunday. Number four, I think we should work at not offending in ministry where it serves no good purpose to do so. Not offending. What does that mean to an unsaved world <laughs> who's doing all kinds of things that they should not be doing? It means we're willing to give up our rights at times if it's going to advance my chances of telling the gospel. Let's pray to that end, shall we?
Heavenly Father, I am convinced our time is short here on the earth. Uh, We want to be found doing ministry. We want to be found when you come being faithful. We want to be found pursuing souls for Jesus Christ and also for living righteously in an unrighteous and fallen world who is showing its true colors as the deception of the enemy uh, overtakes their minds. Help us, Father, to use every minute, every hour, every day that you give us in 2024 for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if it means at one point or another that we have to forego a right liberty that you give us or our authorities give us, may we be willing to do whatever you ask for the sake of your kingdom. And I pray it for us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please open your hymnal to number 335. We will close by singing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Uh, We'll sing this one two times through. God, I do praise you and thank you that you've allowed us to be here, to look at your word today, sing songs of praise to you, and I just pray, Father, that uh, we would, this week, turn our eyes upon Jesus, strive to serve him more, witness for him. We just pray, Father, that you would continue to bless us for all that we do, and forgive us for all that we shouldn't. In Jesus' name, amen.